and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 168. It was almost not at all, because I had some what could be described as technical difficulties this week. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it definitely was one of those weeks. We're still doing our walking challenge at work, which is fine for those that work in a sunnier climate than Scotland, because of the seven days, six of them had rain. So I got very wet and very cold, but that was fine. The dog wasn't too impressed, though. This week, I'm heading to Yorkshire for the Ice Cream and Artisan Food Show, which actually started today, and I'll be setting off right after the podcast. It's quite a long drive, considering with the pandemic, most drives have been very short. I do remember driving pretty much halfway across Canada and only stopping once for fuel and food, but I'm not sure I could do that now. It'll definitely be nice to see somewhere different again, and in Yorkshire I can understand everything, even if they are speaking in dialect, because I can speak it as well. It does take me back to the complaints that flew in the first day I was on the radio in North America, and people were calling the station to ask if the new DJ could speak English. And they were also asking if he could speak English, then why wasn't he? I do think it's important to keep accents and dialects alive. In Scotland, there's the Scots dialect and then there's the Gaelic language. Gaelic does confuse me a little bit because you learn a rule about a particular sound and then there's an exception, so you're not really sure what's going on. It's a bit like English, I guess, which isn't the easiest to learn either. Anyway, on to my painful technical difficulties. Last week I had to cancel an interview because my headset stopped working, and it meant I was talking but there was no volume, something that my family wishes they could benefit from. Anyway, after getting a new headset and doing lots of tests, everything seemed like it was okay until the first interview I did, which had lots of reverb. So I ended up having to do it twice. Thankfully, those involved were very understanding. So I think we're all set now, but it was a lot of work to get to that point, involving moving all kinds of audio files from one computer to another to try and edit them. At least we do have two interviews this week, and it could easily have been zero. Other than that, it's been a pretty quiet week, so not really a lot to talk about. The Winter Olympics are on, and the irony there is that my wife enjoys the Winter Olympics, probably because she's Canadian, and I really don't. I like hockey or ice hockey, but none of the top players are there. And I would watch some of the skiing events, but for the most part, I'm not really that interested. To me, snow and ice means shoveling and treacherous driving, so I'm happy to only see it in the high hills around here. One thing that I'm kicking myself about is last week I missed an opportunity, because the podcast was out on 2-2-22, which I completely forgot. So, who's on the podcast this week? Well, we have two interviews, both a little bit longer than the average, which seems to be just under 15 minutes. So we have two conversations with two people, so that's four people, if that makes any sense whatsoever. We chatted with Steve Bradley, Sales Director at Ave UK, and Stefano Berto, Sales Manager of Priamo Food Technologies. And the second interview is with Kirsten Stromenger, Events Manager at the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association, and John Umhafer, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association, about the World Championship Cheese Contest. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland over at Stone X. 
And that means it's time to have a quick run-through of some of the news we had over the past seven days, or at least the ones I can pronounce. Datacentral acquired CHD expert for food and beverage industry insights, Nestle Health Science is buying a majority stake in Orgain, and Bell Brands USA has expanded its plant-based offerings with Green Baby Bell. Moola in the UK launched a major recruitment drive, Kerry introduced a 6 million euro dairy sustainability program, and DFC in Canada is targeting net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. There's been investment made to boost dairy production in Mauritania. Friesland Campina Engro Pakistan has launched a dairy development centre. The SRUC in Scotland has developed a math agriculture course. And we had our February update from Maxim Foods. The Virtual Cheese Awards are back for the third year in the UK. Azalis has acquired Turkish ingredient company Tunchkaya. And the flavoured low-fat milk programme in US schools has been extended. Farmers in British Columbia and Canada have been helped with a $228 million flood recovery programme. Hydrosol and its partners have developed new children's product concepts to tackle obesity. And the USDA is investing $1 billion in climate-smart commodities and market expansion. And you can read all of these and plenty more at DairyReporter.com. And so we get to the interviews. The first is related to an interesting article we had last week that covered an Italian mozzarella company setting up a plant in the UK that's closer to the UK market. A complete mozzarella ball processing line supplied by Ave UK, part of the Della Tofola group, is set to help Neapolitan cheesemakers Fratelli Amodio recreate the taste of Italy in Somerset, bypassing post-Brexit import taxes, red tape and transportation costs. To tell us more about the story and the equipment are Steve Bradley, Sales Director at Ave UK, and Stefano Berto, Sales Manager of Priamo Food Technologies, and both companies are part of the Delatafola Group. All right, so I guess the first question, if you could give me some background on the company. Yeah, thanks, Jim. So Arve UK was born in 1989 because we were then just part of Arve Technologies, hence the Arve UK title, if you like, or company name. And since then, we have sold over 600 machines to UK-based clients. Not all of the machines have stayed in the UK, so we do a lot of business with the likes of Diageo, and of course they purchase the machinery in the UK, and then they're installed around the world in various different countries, mainly Africa, and we've done a lot of business in spirits within Africa. We basically look after various different sectors, which would be soft drinks, water, wines, spirits, and juices would be our main sectors that we deal with, but we're also supplemented by others which we're talking about today which is the dairy cosmetics oils pharmaceuticals all of which we can help with and the new one of course is a beer so we're really into beer in a strong way the team here in Arve UK is made up of nine so we're a sales and after sales office one of the things I was very keen on in the early days was to be self-sufficient to have our own engineers to have our own backroom team so that whenever the customer needs a spare part or needs maintenance or 
needs an installation and commission of a new line or new machine, we can do that within the UK with our own people. Obviously, when we're doing the bigger installations, the line installations, then that's slightly different because we'd have to have a team of engineers that put that together. So in 2010, our Valentine's Day present on February the 14th, we joined up with the Delatofla Group. There were many other companies that allowed us to sell more equipment. So that was a good thing for us into the UK. And we became a lot stronger in various different sectors, winemaking and dairy, to name but two, because it gave us more equipment to sell. So we've grown quite a lot in what is now 12 years, so much so that we're probably nudging on 700 machines now, I would have thought, in the UK. Then a top of the group is made up of six divisions. Beer is a, a growing market for us, both from filtration and um, bottling and packaging. The beverages, food and obviously dairy, water treatment, chemical and pharmaceuticals, bottling and packaging. And then last but not least, winemaking, which is our strongest sector, if you like, because we believe that we are world leaders in winemaking technology. We've got now with the recent acquisitions that we've had, we've got 11 manufacturing sites all based in the northern parts of Italy. And we've got 10 branch offices around the world as well. Something in the region of around about 800 staff. And we're looking to achieve something in the region of around about 200 million euros for 2022. Most of the equipment that we manufacture is exported around the world. So around about 80% of what we build is sent all over the place. And uh, only 20% is remained in Italy. And mainly that, which Stefano will allude on to later, is uh, in the dairy sector. So the equipment that we can do is everything from process to pallet. Theoretically, what I mean by that is we can take care of the product and we can take care of the bottling and we can take care of the packaging as well. So we really are a one-stop shop, a full turnkey provider from start to finish of all of the equipment needed for customers to put together to have a complete line. All right. And you mentioned the dairy industry there. What kind of solutions do you have for the dairy industry? But at this stage, I'll hand over to Stefano to talk about Priamo. Yeah, thank you, Steve. In the dairy field, the Latofola are able to provide single machines and complete lines as well. With the single machines, uh, we have a very large range of production. We cover the processing, dairy processing from the milk receiving up to the final packaging. In particular, we do have solutions for the milk and storage receiving, raw milk and, and storage. We do have complete uh, systems for the milk uh, pasteurization or sterilization in case of uh, UHT. We have solutions for the milk storage and aseptic uh, milk storage. We do have also solutions for yogurt production in single machines and complete line for yogurt. And also we could provide complete line for cheese production or single machines for the production of cheese. For the cheese, I want to make um, a special introduction of the cheese machines where we are very specialized in Italian style cheese like Parmesan, like mozzarella. 
or like ricotta, which is uh, very, very special Italian cheese. Of course, at the same time, we are able to provide Turkey solutions. So in case of greenfield projects or complete line projects, thanks to the technical office, we could study the engineering of the plant and provide the complete line up to the final filling and packaging. This could be, again, for milk, drinking milk, ESL milk, where we are able to reach at least 21 days shelf life for the final product. It could be for yogurt. We are very specialized in yogurt. We do complete line processing and filling for different type of yogurt, set yogurt, steered yogurt, Greek style yogurt, or any kind of fermented milk products. We complete our portfolio for the dairy with the CIP plant. A CIP plant uh, will be again uh, very customized uh, depending from uh, customers and it complete uh, the solution for the processing lines. Uh, of course, the Latofola is able to provide also solutions uh, for the water treatment thanks to the water treatment division. We do have the possibility to provide solution for the primary water treatment, but also we have solutions for wastewater treatment, which is very important. To supplement the process side of the liquid milk, we also do the bottling and packaging. And for products such as fresh milk and drinking yogurts, we use a technology called uh, electronic filling system, and that gives us extended shelf life, as uh, Stefano mentioned, you know, up to 21 days. It's a highly hygienic system that allows us to sterilize the incoming bottle via a nebulizing turret. And then after that, we have a secondary rinse, which removes all residual liquid. We rinse, fill and cap all on one base. So as soon as we clean the bottle, we fill it. As soon as we fill it, we cap it. That allows us to be more sterile with what we're trying to achieve. And it's enclosed in a guard stroke boothed class 100, which uses HEPA filtration to guarantee a sterile filling process area. There's no cross-contamination with any bottles due to the non-contact technology that we use. Because it's only a pipe and a magflow meter and a diaphragm valve, it's very easy to clean. It's low maintenance because we've got less moving parts. Reduced spare parts holding is good as well. and when you get to the filling side of it, the stability and product quality, we believe, is guaranteed. As well as that, it's a very accurate filler, probably one of our most accurate filling technologies that we've got. And it uses magflow meters to a predetermined volume. And that's on each individual filling valve as well. And that filling technology is then supplemented downstream where we'd have other group companies such as Z Italia who would do rotary self-adhesive labelling machines and also OMB, if it was low speed, then we could do linear self-adhesive labelling machines as well. And then the rest of the packaging equipment after that, we can provide too. You've been working with an Italian company to help them get set up in the UK. Could you tell me about that? Well, thanks to our Italian customers, we keep in contact with this um, Italian family living in UK. 
and they wanted to set up their own uh, production in UK. The main reason is uh, because of Brexit. They realized that import products from Italy to UK, it's more expensive now. And also they found a very good quality raw materials, milk in UK, which is good for the production. And also they considered that the machines that we, we supplied to them, giving the possibility to realize the same quality in terms of product, final product, as in Italy. So finally, they decide to set up this new factory. The possibility, the capability of the plant is to producing uh, mainly Italian style cheese, like mozzarella. Mozzarella is the, the main production, but they could do also different type of cheese, semi-hard cheese and hard cheese, Italian style as well. They could produce uh, burrata as well. And finally, by using the way after cheese production, they produce the ricotta, which is also very important and is a growing, growing market in UK. You mentioned them setting up in the UK. What were their main motivations for setting up? Is it a mixture of Brexit and issues with transportation, that kind of thing? Absolutely, yes. Brexit is for sure one reason. And the second is transportation, of course. Some of these uh, products, like mozzarella or ricotta, they have also a short shelf life. So producing this product directly in UK, giving them also the benefit to be more present in the market because of shortage uh, of delivery from Italy comparing with UK. Do you think that the combination of those Brexit issues, transportation costs, we've seen worker shortages, we've seen sustainability issues, do you think that all of that combines to make this something that other companies are considering doing or should consider if they're in Europe and vice versa for UK companies setting up in the European market? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm a strong believer in that. I, we're, we're already seeing with the level of inquiries that we're getting that, you know, you take the worker shortages aspect. And that's very true because what we're seeing is people are trying to be more automated. And that's more automated, whether it's at the front end in the process side or whether it's in the bottling side and mainly in the packaging side. So we're, we're looking at a lot more companies wanting to automate their whole process to be more in control of their own destination. You're right, Steph, to touch on transport. I mean, the transport costs have risen substantially over the last two years. So that has a real bearing on people wanting to produce locally to the local market, providing they don't obviously have any difference in quality with the product that they're trying to sell, whether that be a dairy product or whether that be a beverage product. So very much so, Jim, I think more people looking to be self-sufficient in the UK for sure. And that would be in the same, you know, looking for the European side too. And clearly you're able to help on the equipment side of things. Does that extend to how companies can save money on waste? I mean, are they coming to you to say, can you help us with all of this? Yeah, we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we are the full turnkey providers and Steph uh, mentioned it earlier, you know, we can do wastewater treatment plants as well. So we're trying to work with all of our customers to be a lot more self-sufficient in what they do in reducing their costs and to to help with their carbon footprint. It's something that we're continually working with with our customers for sure. 
And yeah, energy consumption is really uh, important. I guess a lot of the equipment that you sell will be energy efficient. We definitely try to make it that way. I think if you look at some of the equipment that Stefano produces at Priamo, the design of that, or, the, or should we say the new trend, is uh, to control the process of heating and cooling because we recognise that we want to reduce their energy costs because that is absolutely rising beyond belief at this moment in time. So we can offer different solutions. And one of the biggest things that I think uh, our URS will be, you know, we're, we're almost like a boutique of the process and bottling and packaging equipment. We listen to what the customer's requirements are and every single inquiry is completely different in so many different ways. So it's how best we listen to be able to provide the solution that the customer requires. And also, Steve, on this point, because we are, again, customers, solutions provider, we very customize our, our machines and our plant. Of course, our technical office look at the projects, uh, especially from this point of view. No? So they study the machines uh, and they try to find the best solutions for giving as much as possible energy recovery on the machines uh, that we provide to our customers. Now it's over to the US and Wisconsin to find out more about the upcoming World Championship Cheese Contest. From Kirsten Stromenger, Events Manager at the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association, and John Umhafer, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association. I wonder if you could give me a bit of history on the World Championship Cheese Contest. Well, the short version of the long story is that our association has been running a contest since 1893 every year. And in 1957, they decided to invite other countries. Got some entries, and I know Kirsten looked at this. That first year, we got some entries, I think, from England. We got some from Ireland, I believe. Canada, certainly. It was really a cheddar competition back then in the 50s. And then uh, it moved to even-numbered years, where we've tried to keep it pandemic or no. It became an all-cheese contest then uh, in the 60s. And growing really every year for, since for the last 40 years, every, every contest for the last 40 years has been larger than the one before. So it's been satisfying to watch that happen. And it's grown both in, you know, entries in the classes we had, and we've grown hugely the number of classes, the types of cheeses and, and now yogurts and butters and dairy ingredients that are included. Always it had an emphasis on the technical side it's not a beauty contest. It's a technical grading. We're looking for defects, looking for the perfect cheese by finding the cheese that has the fewest flaws. The technical defects, those go right to the cheesemaker in how they're making their cheese. And so each single defect, the cheesemaker should be able to pinpoint what part that is in their cheese make process or the ingredients, the aging so it, it really speaks to the, the manufacturing process, the technical nature of making it. I was going to ask whether it was something similar to the, um, to the World Series or the Super Bowl, where it was a world, uh, the World Championships, but it was only U.S. cheeses. So we've surpassed for a number of years about 1,000 entries just from countries outside of the United States. Of course, the judges have for the last, well, way back into the 1970s, 
you've brought in judges from Europe and and uh, and now the judging for decades has been half judges from outside the United States and half judges from the United States. So, and then we pair up a, a judge from overseas with a U.S. judge. So we try our very best to make it um, numeric, technical, objective, international, and we don't care who wins. We just run a contest. We, just, <laughs> we put sure. the cheeses on the table and may the best cheese win. Is it the same as other competitions where the people that are judging it don't know what they're judging in terms of the where it's from or whatever? We do that to the best extent possible, right, Kirsten? Yeah, for sure. I think there are some cheeses that I think you just, when you're around cheese enough, as a lot of our cheese experts are, they think you just know what's in front of you if you're seeing it sometimes, but no other bias goes into it. It's exactly what that product looks like that day. And the score sheet guides as. Probably 90% of the product is, is coming in just as a bare cheese. If you look at a Swiss Emmentaler, you know, they embed the, the logo types into the casein finish. So there's just no getting around. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's also the part of the, the nature of our technical judging too, is that none of the label or any of the like prettiness of decoration goes into that final score because it just, there isn't a place for it there. And so we're coming up to the 2022 edition. How has the pandemic affected things? (laughs) It has affected things. It's it's definitely (laughs) different. Uh, You know, we knew going into this year that we would need to be flexible and in a lot of things, uh, knowing that, there's unknown, of course, but even with our, our judges, those who have accepted that are uh, outside of the United States and knowing that their travel plans could change the day before they're supposed to arrive and we have to adapt and even just entry product shipping, you know, logistics of, of getting things here, even logistics of getting product out the door of some of these facilities is harder than it ever has been in previous years labor shortage, product shortage, you know, they're trying to do the best they can to get product to grocery stores and buyers. And this is a a different obstacle that they've had. They haven't really had in two years since our last contest. So it's different from all aspects, but we still have international judges that are able to join us as of now. And that's looking pretty good as far as travel goes and entries too. Um, As John said that we've had over a thousand uh, international entries, usually every every U.S. or every world year, and that has stayed strong. We didn't know how that would how that would go this year, but we actually have, are right on track for exactly where we've been for international entries in previous years. It was exciting to see. And I know John, you get you gave a little bit of um, history of the contest. Uh, how has it changed, and does it continue to evolve? Yeah, we. We believe in constantly improving the contest. And and the most clear way you'd see that from the outside is that the classes move and change and grow all the time. And we add, as the industry changes, as the industry finds new hot cheeses, we we always want to stay on trend. Also, we see things grow that that surprise us in pleasant ways, and we end up having to break. We, We added a smear cheese class, the fragrant rinded cheeses uh, many alcohol years ago. wash wine spirit <laughs> wash you know sometimes right. on the fly where like we need to adapt for where our entries are at because 
in order to run the contest, we can't have a class with so many entries. So, but then we take that feedback, you know, in one year, carry it over to the next of, of figuring out these are the products that are entering the contest now. What are the needs that we have for these? Is a class with all 80 of these products the best representation of all these cheeses together? Or should we break that apart so that they're a little bit more appropriately categorized? And we do that every year. And, and that's with feedback from entrants as well. Um, them saying, you know, somebody might say, you know, this is where the cheese fits in this category, but I think there's Along with my product and other products, there might be a better classification that you might want to look into. And that's where this year we broke out. We've had spreadable cheese classes in the past, but this year we broke out more of defined definitions for cream cheese categories, which we are in the U.S. We base a lot of our definitions off of the U.S. Uh, standards of identity. And so for our cream cheese classes, we defined those according to that, that definition. So that creates a little bit more like fair playing field of a similar cheese style or cream cheese style in those classes and the, the products in that. And how many entries would you typically get in each of those categories? I mean, is it mostly cheese with a bit in the others or is it fairly equal? It is, it's mostly cheese uh, across the board. We have maybe a couple hundred in each of those other categories, I would say. But the majority of the contest, it's, it's cheese. What about the geographical distribution? Is that, again, most of them are cheeses for the international? You know, it, it definitely is. We do have a couple more international entries that are in the, the dry dairy, like the, the powders and the, the whey, but those might just logistically be a little bit easier to get, you know, to be sent internationally versus some, like a yogurt. And you, you mentioned those different categories. Is it open to everybody, whether it's just somebody working in their basement right their way through to the biggest dairy companies in the world? It won't say anybody in their basement. So they do have the logistic. They have to, especially internationally, you have to be able to get it here. So that does create a hurdle of getting it through customs and making sure that you have the proper registration with the FDA here. So if you were just like an artisan producer producing a couple of wheels every couple of years, you would be okay right through to, I mean, do you allow, you know, from like the huge companies as well, like the crafts yeah, and the. It is, it is. That's the one thing I do really enjoy seeing in this contest is it, it's small artisan cheesemakers and large producers that are heavy volume of cheese being put out the door every day and versus somebody who might be making just one or two wheels a day. And it really speaks to our contest being for the cheesemaker. And what do you have that's new for 2022? Are there any new categories or are there any places that you've, you're seeing entries from that you've never seen before? We have some cheese entries coming from Iceland this year, and I'm excited about those. And as I said, some uh, dry dairy ingredients, we have some coming from Hungary this year as well. <laughs> there was one cheese that comes from Tibet. Yes. <laughs> always fun to get. And it's made from yak milk. Obviously, the entries have closed now for 2022. What do you have to do between now and then logistically to get ready for this? Because when you're getting cheeses coming in from all over the world, it must be quite the operation. Yeah. So between the, you know, the entry deadline and the, the contest itself, making sure that all the entrants have the right information to get their products. So we partner with Wow Logistics and Wisconsin Asian Grating Cheese, and they graciously allow us to work in their warehouse for 
basically three weeks to accept entries. They store them all there in a uh, cold storage warehouse and sort them there and make sure they're in the right classes. But part of it is making sure that all of our entrants can get their products to us in, in a timely fashion and get all the paperwork done and, and get them here. And it's also, you know, from the entry deadline time, we know how many products are on each class. Then we assign the judges to teams and the, the classes. So one thing that's sort of the heroic work that Kirsten does is the logistics of those smaller entries from overseas often takes uh, a real team because uh, the larger entrants know how to get cheese to the United States and they do it every day. But uh, when she's trying to get those artisans in, they, they need to find a, an importer. They need to work uh, with customs. They need to work with FDA. They need to register their facility. It's just a lot of, uh, lot of logistics that Kirsten's become expert at. And it actually opens the door for them to then sell into the United States because it's the same process. So in some cases, it's really been their first taste of uh, getting into the U.S. market. So there's a little side benefit for those small companies. And I guess there's also, it's a perishable commodity. It's not like a, a can of or a tin of something where it's going to be able to stay on the shelf. I mean, time is important <laughs> when it comes to cheese. Right. It's a race to keep it in the cold chain. Often uh, you need to keep it on a cold truck and a cold airplane and on another cold truck and in a cold warehouse. And Luckily, it's winter here, so that helps the cold chain a lot. <laughs> And so for the judging itself, uh, who does, you mentioned the fact that you, you do the pairing up of judges and how does the judging process work and how do you work on the criteria and how transparent is that? Sure. sure. So um, part of the process that goes into inviting judges is, you know, making sure that we have across the board uh, individuals who have an expertise in specific categories of cheeses. We have some judges that are experts in everything cheddar. So pairing up judges that have that same expertise, that judge the same products and have that same knowledge base. And then, you know, we have other judges that are experts in, you know, sheep cheeses or goat cheeses. And so you find that balance and that's part of a logistic of planning too, is you invite judges so they have enough time to plan and prepare for their travel in kind of hitting hitting marks that that fit from their expertise to our classes to the amount of entries that we have and it's an interesting sort of puzzle challenge each year and what about the the criteria when it comes to the actual judging what what are you mm -hmm. looking for so uh, to the technical score sheet it is body and texture flavor and then also like small part of the score sheet is appearance yeah, Sporty. for us, appearance isn't the, the beauty. It's the, uh, is it lopsided? Is there a dent in the cheese? Is there, is the corner uh, is it rounded when it should be square? It's, it, it really comes back to the more of a technical look at appearance than the, than the beauty of the label, for example. And is it something, do, do you broadcast the final event? I mean, and, and do people get to get a bit of a flavor as to what the judges are thinking? We spend two days. Each cheese is seen by the, a pair of judges, and they each score it independently, quietly, and those scores are averaged, and then that cheese has a final score. So in, in the sharp cheddar class, the aged cheddar class, for example, there will be one cheese with the highest score out of 100. It'll have the fewest defects. There'll be a second and a third. And in those 
what is it about 90 some cheese classes there'll be a winner just one winner we don't give gold medals out to everybody like some contests we give one gold medal in a class um, those cheeses then about 90 of them go on uh, into another day and all the judges then see the judges break up and they pick in groups of 10 cheeses they pick two from a table and say these two out of these 10 get to go to the final round so we go from 90 down to 20 then all 50 some judges look at those last 20 cheeses again and they taste them and they touch them and they uh, smell them and those 20 then from those 20 come the world champion cheese and the two runners up and again, that's a technical judging in that round as well. And is there any way that the public get to see all of this? In previous years, we had before different protocols for COVID this year, we have had our, you know, the doors open to the contest so people could come in. It was mostly, you know, locals or those around Wisconsin, but uh, would come and they could watch the judges uh, evaluate the products. This year, it'll, it'll be a little bit different. We have our, our doors closed and um, only open to our judges, our staff, and our volunteers this year. Just trying to keep a good, comfortable control over our environment this year. But we will announce the winners over a live stream Thursday afternoon, uh, 2 p.m. Central Time. Uh, we'll announce our, our top three. So Thursday morning, we'll have we'll know who our top 20 cheesemakers are, and so we'll we'll contact them as soon as we can and get them a link so they can join us for the announcement so that hopefully when we let everyone know who the top three are, that we'll have them on a Zoom call with us and they'll find out then. And as far as those winners of the categories, is it just a kudos thing or are there actually physical prizes? For every gold, silver, and bronze winner in every class, they get a, a plaque and the the gold medal, there's a gold medal in the middle of the plaque and that is 24 karat gold plating. Uh, and then our top three of the entire contest get a, a nice big trophy that also has those nice medallions on them. The other thing they earn is that we don't charge for this, but we give them rights to use our contest logo, noting, you know, gold medalist 2022. And we do give that out free to everyone. We only ask and we look for it to be true. <laughs> they must truly have been the gold medal winner. Uh, medal winner. And uh, so we, we watch for that. But other than that, we give away that, that right to people. And we see it um, in grocery stores. I've seen it actually overseas and when I've traveled. And so it's, it's rewarding to see our medallion on a cheese stating that they're a winner. Because the goal of the contest really is to help the industry, both learning how their cheese could be better every year from the judges and hopefully uh, selling more cheese because they have won a contest. Have there been any good success stories from winners that have managed to yeah. know, either increase sales or move into new markets? So many, actually, that <laughs> every year. Just the last plant that won uh, from France, the Basque cheese that won, the sheep cheese that won in 18, I believe. Mm -hmm. You can Google online. They had to double the size of their factory after winning our contest. <laughs> because the, suddenly the markets opened up for them, including in the United States where they hadn't sold it ever before. And now it's actually in my grocery store. I just bought some the other day. So just to kind of honor that win. It's so things like that. And, and, and then domestically, we've had people tell us that it completely changed their business, especially on the artisan side, where they go from unknown to well-known. 
So a Emmy Roth USA, they have a couple of plants here in Wisconsin and one with one of their smear ripened aged cheeses, eight, nine months aged, uh, I think was like the minimum for that cheese. And they sold out of all of it right away and, you know, have really been able to catapult off of that win with knowledge. I think, of course, definitely in Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, across the U.S. of retailers and grocery stores really wanting to carry that product and even for them too, with the, with the time, they didn't have enough of those wheels, you know, just already being aged for nine months. So they're taking orders for people nine months down the road of, Hey, we're going to try to make as much of this cheese right now as we can keep up with our other orders and age this product. So people can have it on the shelves, which does wonders also for a business that uh, increases sales and sales of their other products as well. Not many retailers could have that cheese right away. So retailers picked up up their other cheeses and said, you know, this cheesemaker makes the the top cheese of the world right now. So there are practical and positive things that come out of winning other than just the plaque then? I think so, yes. definitely. Yeah, we're, we're proud to provide that opportunity for them to have a chance to change their business for the cost of, a, of an entry fees. Even those that may not come away from the contest with the gold medal or, you know, the top three, they still enter the contest because of the the evaluation, that score sheet, the feedback that they get back from the judges, because that's valuable to what they do every day. So entering their product in the contest is a less expensive way to get that feedback. Do you see any of that where you send feedback to a company that hasn't necessarily won and they come back and they do improve over the years? Specifically, a couple of years ago, there was a cheesemaker that did volunteer. So then after the contest, after the second day of judging, he had gone over to the judges and said, I don't score as well as these other cheeses do. What do I need to do to get a better score on this? And I wasn't there for exactly how they walked him through it, but he's definitely won medals since. I think you had an anecdote about one of the major companies out of Europe that's been entering. They've got plants in the United States and they have been slowly climbing in scores through the years to where they're starting to take gold medals when they just started, say, in the below the top 10 many years ago. So I think they've used the contest to both. And then they've told us it's not only the improvement in the cheese, but the morale. A lot of companies tell us that they enter, build morale on the staff. It's exciting to win a contest. And it's exciting to become better through the contest years. But it, but it does seem that it is, it's great on so many different levels. It's not just about entering a, a cheese and maybe winning a prize. It's uh, economical, it's improvement, it's, it's, there's so mm-hmm. many different levels. that it. Yeah, the morale is a big factor. Yeah, it, it's the human element. Cheese making is still a craft. It really is. It still takes artistry. And we hear that even from the largest companies. Because some cheeses they make on a given day are better than others, even when you think you've automated everything. The milk comes in differently. The cultures react differently. The humidity is different in the room. That air temperature is different. There's so many factors that go into cheese making. And then the curing process, the consistent temperature in the curing room, the handling of the cheese. It, there's so many factors that it's one of those industries that's still a craft. And uh, that's reflected in the fact that they like to see this kind of feedback. They're not just making widgets. They really are making a living product that They're fascinated to see how they score every year. Now it's over to Charlie Highland at StoneX in Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Um, A pretty quiet 
dairy market uh, in terms of new data in the last week, um, but not necessarily a quiet one in terms of, of market sentiment and prices. Very much a continuation of the same theme that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Market continues to grind uh, slightly, well, grind higher basically in, in, in all regions. Um, New Zealand has been quite active and, and whole milk powder in particular and the futures markets has been moving up uh, quite considerably over the last few days. As continued issues there around milk supply continue to weigh in the market as, as demand seems to be uh, continued to be robust and pretty much the same situation in Europe. Um, I mean, in terms of the physical quotations uh, that just released this morning, not much of a move in them, but are slightly higher up 0.3% to, but it's over a level of over 6,000 euros per tonne. And skim has been unchanged, but also at very high levels of 3,600 euros per tonne. In general, not a lot of new statistics out uh, in Europe, but no real change to the sentiment. We We do have... Uh, or did have, should I say, some export numbers out of the US released overnight. And they came in significantly lower than expected, uh, down 4.6% on a milk equivalent basis. Uh, we had been forecasting an increase of uh, exports of about 10.2%, um, based primarily on the fact that the US market has been quite competitively priced on the world stage. So uh, clearly the exports have dramatically undershot our expectations and possibly a, a big part of this is due to logistical problems um, but also it does lead to some concern that um, some of the uh, import markets um, which we expected to be satisfied from US product you know may not be actually coming to fruition so that could continue to put some additional uh, increased pricing pressure on, um, on European and, and New Zealand markets um, there is a big trade show on next week uh, in Dubai, Gulf Food, and I think that's usually quite an important one to get a good gauge of international sentiment. Um, a lot of suppliers and buyers from around the world uh, going to that. So that'll be a good event to test really what the uh, the depth of this um this challenge we currently have is how is the demand holding up at these high levels do we expect uh, with the high energy prices the, the the region in particular the middle east to to continue to um have strong demand uh, and is there any light at the end of the tunnel in terms of uh, milk supply so we'll uh, we'll keep you updated from that next week all right thanks as always charlie i wish i was going to golf food as well but we will catch up with you from there again next week StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. Time to quickly throw some things in a bag for the ice cream show. Hopefully I'll remember the entry ticket, and more importantly, the recording equipment, and a couple of masks, although there probably will be some on the stands, maybe with ice cream on. I mean a picture of ice cream, not actually ice cream smeared onto the masks. That will no doubt happen when I'm sampling, like it did in Germany at Anuga, when I didn't pull the mask down far enough and got yogurt all over it. It will be nice to be back on the road again, and even nicer that the forecast is decent there, as opposed to the 13 out of the next 14 days here in Scotland, where it's going to rain. But at least you don't have to shovel rain. I also need to grab a few CDs to listen to on the way, I can only take so much of the radio, and since the latest iPhone update, it doesn't connect to the car anymore. Apparently the dealership can upgrade the software in the car for a mere $200, 
and it'll take about 30 seconds to do, no doubt. So I'll keep the $200 and listen to CDs instead. Although it might take the rest of the day to choose them. Okay, so I had better get packing, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. That you don't forget Valentine's Day, and wherever in the world you may be, that you have a great week, stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.